Today's episode is sponsored by EditPods. EditPods provide full-service podcast editing that's all in one podcast editing without breaking the bank. Now, one of the biggest problems that I have when running this podcast is the time it takes to edit, clip, upload, and post my podcast in all of the right places with some new artwork, links, descriptions, and all of the jazz that comes along with it. Now, what EditPods do is help podcasters skip all the hassle and focus directly on making the best show possible, freeing our minds to help hone the craft instead of spending time writing copy and doing transcripts and finding links, all of these time-consuming activities. So EditPods work with podcasters that want to focus their time on areas of excellence and take the rest off their plate. If that sounds good to you, you can use the coupon code CHATTER to get $30 off basic or plus or $50 off a premium for the first month. That's CHATTER, C-H-A-T-T-E-R, for $30 or $50 off your first month at EditPods. Make podcasting fun again. Um, Okay, so uh, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, Today I'm here with Gerald Schroeder, who is um, a former MIT scientist who did his bachelor's, master's and PhD there and then worked seven years on the staff. Uh, He was a member of the United States Atomic Energy Commission and has been the author of numerous books, um, uh, uh, numerous books exploring the relationship between science and spirituality. So uh, Jerry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and I'm Happy to be here. Yeah. So I'm in Jerusalem at the moment. So it's 10 o'clock at night here. Yes. I really appreciate you doing this a little bit uh, late. So oh, no, I'm just saying the time difference is amazing. Ah, well, I'm in the UK, so it's not, it's not, um, not too different. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm based out of London. Um, so I'm not quite on the, on the United States. It was a uh, misunderstanding explains, on my part. Yeah. On the uh, time. That, that explains your accent. Yeah. There you go. I'm from Northern Ireland. Um, so God's own country, as we call it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's many places have claim to that, but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the reason I invited you on was, was for your work, um, exploring, yeah, the, the, the combination between, um, and the relationship between science and spirituality. So this is something I've been looking into, um, recently under the encouragement, as I mentioned, of a, of a friend of mine. And the thing that I sort of... The, the first thing I'd like to ask, actually, is like, where, where did you begin, like, your exploration of this topic? Um, I, I'm assuming you had like a, a Jewish upbringing, so that would the the religious aspect of it would have been from probably from an early age. And the fact that you d- you studied at MIT suggests that you were also very interested in science from like a fairly young age. But where did you start to explore the relationship between the two? Well, actually. At home, we were, I would say, reformed conservative type Jews. We knew we were, we were Orthodox, but we didn't live an Orthodox life. But my, my grandmother on my mother's side was, and that was probably the, the link of the dominoes that led to this. What started it, uh, as far as getting things written down on paper, were the, our kids. We... I moved to Israel in 71, and my wife, we met here, and we lived for several years between Tel Aviv and Haifa, towards the north of the country, and there are some some famous pivotal caves in the out of Africa, because we're the link. Israel is like a link, and those caves have been peopled by Homo sapiens sapiens 150,000, 80,000 years ago, and they're always mentioned in the and. My kids would, and I, we'd cram, we'd go hiking, climb up, and now they're quite developed. Those days they were known also, but they weren't like tourist attractions. Now they are. And uh, so questions always arose, you know, about the, all these, these, these people from, from 40,000, 20,000, 10,000 years ago. But the Bible says Adam is less than 6,000. And our kids were going to, of religious greats in Israel, they have secular and not secular. I don't think there are any secular things really, because Israel living in Israel is enough of a commitment. But, but you know, they they knew more of the Bible then than I knew knew when I was four times their age. Hmm. So they would ask that, and then one day they came home and said, you know, our teacher said that she had heard that there never were dinosaurs, but we don't believe her. We think <laughs> there were dinosaurs. Okay, that was enough. So I started putting together notes, writing things down. I never think 
zero thing of publishing, but that's what got it started in doing this. Formerly, what got me into actually looking into these things from a theological point of view was before we made Aliyah, I was still back at MIT, and some wonderful combination, strange but wonderful combination of topics that I'd studied, I was asked to, to do certain monitoring at the first nuclear explosion bomb test, we never called them bombs, after a five-year hiatus. So it was amazing because everything was great Russian. I had I was in Cambridge, that's out there in, in, in Nevada, back and forth, et cetera. And I came back from that test, and I really think the test might have been on Russia and uh, the biblical New Year, because I came back and, and I get this note from the rabbi, I heard you this, this, and this, and I had no contact with him before, zero. And he said, Will you give a talk on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, which is 10 days after uh, Russia, if you count nine days after, after that. And I said, Of course, I can't. What can I talk about? I, I don't know, and I don't know, you know. I, a from B, now it's L from B. And uh, then I said, no, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I, the whole talk was about the, the emotional experience of power. Not, oh, we can destroy the world. None of that schmaltzy stuff, just power. And it was, you know, you could have put a monkey up there and it would have been a good talk because it was, every, it was in everyone's mind. And so the next year they asked me, so the next year I couldn't give the same talk. So I figured I had to study it a little bit. Hmm. By the fourth year of studying each Russian shine, you know, giving that talk, a different talk I was putting on to fill in. So my suggestion to any Jews that are listening, if you don't want to get in, don't start, in fact, anyone. If you don't want to get involved in, in theology, don't study the early text because they're so, they're so deep. You know, once you get by, the, if you get by cynicism and you look at the depth of the knowledge, it's, over, it's amazing. And it just draws you in, even from an intellectual point of view, which may be not the right reason to, to go into it, but that. And so that plus then moving to Israel, the kids asking, and then if, may, I won't take your time on your program, but an extraordinary chain of coincidences ended up with, I mean, just one domino after another, never relating a, an editor, one of the, a, an agent rather, shows up at our house. And, and gives us a call, and Barbara says, come have a Friday night meal with us. And she comes, and this is an editor that we'd met years ago. It's, and what they, what every every week in, 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 in Judaism, we read a different part, a few chapters of the Hebrew Bible. The, the week she called, we were reading Genesis, hmm. chapter one. I gave my little five-minute talk. Helen V, she should rest in peace. Get my five minute talk, we all finishes. You know, I can see how things stick in your head. They say emotion fixes memories more strongly than non emotion. She's at the door, leaving, her hands on the hand, handle. I'm, I'm behind her, gonna walk with her a bit. She turns and said, Jerry, what you said tonight is a book, write it. She pitched it, and amazingly, it was a, it was a breakthrough in publishing then. It's chance the big bank, because Bantam Doubleday, which was the largest publisher in the world at the time, Bought it. Wow. And everyone, all other, she only then she showed me all the rejection letters. And all the rejection letters said, we don't miss, we don't mix our Bible with our science. Company after company said that. But she was, as an agent, she pushed and pushed. And uh, finally, Michelle Rapkin, a devout Baptist actor, uh, bought it. And uh, that was the beginning. So, so Sometimes you look at coincidences in the world and, you know, it's a, uh, I want, sometime we were off air and you have three, three, four, three minutes, I'll tell you the whole line. It's one. Yeah, but just go, go ahead, man. I mean, the, the, the show yeah, is, is, is the, I'd, I'd be, I'd be fascinated well, to hear what, well, what it was. So we're on sabbatical. Okay. I'm, I'm now Barbara and I are living in the States. We have, we have three kids. Barbara has to put the two reasons. I can't even help her close down the house. We got a baby that's, that's maybe six months old, and we're going on sabbatical. I mean, it's closing the house for a year. It's at the granted house. Off to the States and go. We go to Brookline, Massachusetts, where I have it. I have a job for the sabbatical at, a, at a, one of the big consulting companies that has an affiliation with MIT. That's how I made And I'm not, I'm not an MIT no longer, but we, I knew these people from before, Arthur D. Little. And uh, I go off, and Barbara's home with the kids. She's got to put the kids in preschool. She goes to a preschool, puts them in, meets 
a, a magnificent woman named uh, <laughs> named uh, Caesar. Caesar, you know, juggling the kids. Come back to my house. Barbara says, "Yeah, you don't want to." I keep pushing. Woman stocks you with. Well, they they go back. They back then. Uh, uh, Sarah, Sarah, referring. And and Sarah says, Let, "Let's go to this meeting. We have a, you know, a conference of, of editors." Turns out, turns out that this woman Sarah that saw Barbara juggling the kids at the preschool is also a writer. My wife is Barbara Sofer. She has a column in Jerusalem Post, has a bunch of books, etc. Uh, in fact, one of the books is, which she co-authored, actually she wrote it, but is being presented to Biden when he comes in two days to. Uh, oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, I hope it, that would be wonderful if he, if, he, if he looks at it. Anyway, she's not presenting it. Another a person who about any of So they go, they meet, then the sabbatical is over. We go back to the States. A year goes by, telephone rings. It's the middle of the week. Hi, I'm Helen Reese. You remember me? I met a friend of Sarah. We met at that conference. Oh, yeah, Helen, why don't you come? And I realized this the years when we met there. We're back here. Why don't you come for dinner? It's Friday night. Genesis, I give the talk, write the book. Months go by. I'm alone in the house of, and uh, a night, the night before Passover. The night before Passover, you get rid of all the leavened bread. So Barbara and the kids are over at her elderly mother, my mother-in-law, her mother, the other side of Jerusalem. I'm alone in the house. Helen Reese is on the phone. Jerry, are you sitting down? I said, what's the problem? Bantam Doubleday just bought your book. So that's a nice Passover present. And then one thing led to another, other the other, other editors, other publishers read that and wanted the other books. So, mm. you know, you really, uh, if we hadn't gone on sabbatical, you and I wouldn't be talking today right now. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way of looking at it. So there you go. Um, people should take more sabbaticals. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> um, so one of the things that, that, that amazes me about this topic is, is is kind of what you mentioned there is that it, it's it's both the subject can be, or can be the subject of of a lot of derision both from um scientific and religious uh groups and yet whenever someone addresses it like seriously and explores it like seriously it seems to become like incredibly popular um i mean like for example like the 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 place that i first began looking into these ideas um just of of like the sort of maybe like deeper meanings in the bible than um some story that the people tell was um some of the lectures that that jordan peterson had done on the psychological significance of of genesis and i was stunned when i found out he was doing tours where he was like selling out arenas of people like talking about this and i was like what like people don't do that that doesn't happen <laughs> and and to me what it what it suggests is like despite maybe people's cynicism that there's something like very real in in what you're talking about i mean that's at least what it suggests to me I, like do you get that sense of 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 that's the reason perhaps why why it's been popular well some of the cynics none of the cynicisms some of the symptoms sometimes is mister is directed at a misconception a misconception of what this biblical God is all about. Whether you're talking in the, the gospels or the or the Hebrew Bible, is a, a major misconception. And with that misconception, I, I agree with the people. You know, the God they don't believe and I don't believe in either. You know, so, uh, the what I what I find is that when you the, when you present the information to a person who is interested enough to listen, so that's they're partway through the door already because they're wanting to listen. But if they're interested enough to listen, it, it's been my experience that almost always they'll go through the door all the way and say there is something in it. They may they may not see a, a totally personal God active in every moment. In fact, many of the many of the major speakers, like Maimonides and Nachmanides, say that God's interaction is for the group. It's very it's very different from what you learn as one learns as a child when you're wanting to think that you have this immediate 
have a, there is this immediate father figure, but the the hashgacha, the the control sometimes is for you see this in the Hebrew very clearly. Versus group versus individual plays back and forth. And I I can understand a person being reluctant to see, to feel it necessarily at an individual level, but could see it maybe as a group level. On the other hand, when I look at that chain of events that led me to me talking with you right now, I don't I have no idea what made that happen. But Helen Reese did phone out of all the days of the year, right? We're about to give a little word of the Bible about Genesis chapter one. So. So I think um, what would be useful here uh, possibly would be. So one of the, one of the things that the the first things I came across of your work was uh, you discussing how you believe that the, the time dilation and the stretching factor um, sort of means that the idea that the the like the earth and everything in it was created in six days is not the sort of insane proposition that it seems would you mind talking me through that a little bit more just because would i, I mind yeah then I, I someone said to me they could wake me up at two in the morning because <laughs> it's not that i believe it it's the fact it's a fact from the text it's all text-based and the, and and although the calculations are totally mine, the concepts that leap from based on these facts go back, well, maybe Tanhu would be 1,800 years, and Nachmanides would be about, about seven, 800, 800 years. So it's way before dinosaurs were a problem in cavemen. And the whole key is perspective. The key of perspective, in fact, I'm, and, and it is totally, it's totally based on... From the science point of view, on redshift, on the, on the, the first we have to get to the idea that there are two perspectives in the Bible. We, the Bible says, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and it gives Genesis chapter one, one two, goes through the days. But we, that's from a perspective of the Bible looking forward. How do we know that that's the Bible looking forward? And that's not my idea. Again, Nachmanis about 800 years ago, but others before him pointed this out. As the Bible numbers the days, because of these six days, a bunch of things happen, and then it says, and there's evening and morning, and then the day is numbered. More things happening. So it goes like, so there's evening, morning, day one. Next day, evening, morning, second day. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, the sixth day. So the question asked is phenomenally insight. Why does the text say day one? Why doesn't it say a first day? The Hebrews explicit on this. The text says this evening, day one, but it says second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And the phenomenal insight is, well, the Bible couldn't write a first day on the first day because the only time you write first is when there's already a second. The world wars are the obvious example. Only the pessimists called the first world war, the first world war during the first world war. Mm. Everyone else called the Great War, the Big War, but when the Second World War came, became the first. The insight, you know, it's so obvious, but it's overwhelming because why would it interest a person 800 years ago and, and before him 400 years earlier that, that the Bible is seeing the, those six days from before, from the beginning looking forward, put it that way. Because if it was seen, if it was seen from Sinai, you can add, the Bible gives you why does the Bible give us ages in the first place? Who cares that Adam and Eve live 130 years till they have their second, their third kid, Seth, and Seth lives 105 years for his kid? Who cares about those years? Apparently, the author of the Bible does, because the author wants a calendar, and the calendar helps prove the validity. So you can add up the years, and by the time you get to Moses on Sinai, hundreds of thousands of second days have gone by. So if the, if the Bible has given on Sinai, and I'll take it, I, I, I don't have a theological problem with that or a miracle problem. The Bible on Sinai, especially after this, this most recent discovery of this lead tablet, I don't know if you're up on that, but, oh, well, we'll get, make it, we'll get into that later, but okay. if we have time. Yeah. If the view of the six days were from Sinai looking back, well, there'd been about 100,000 or 200,000, I forgot the number, thousands of second days. The text would have written, there's a first day. 
the only time where the text had to write there was day one is from the beginning looking forward. And then that and then that that same person points out that although time is created at the creation, the clock doesn't begin until there's matter. Okay, Mishi Hebrew. Anyone there's listen Hebrew? Mishi Yeshit Fosbosman. Once you have solid matter, time grabs. Time is passing, but that transition of about a hundred thousandth of a second from the creation, where the commentators then, I'm not talking about modern, say, time is created, as Mandifer, time is created at the creation, but it doesn't grab a hold. I mean, there's nothing measuring it. And that's pretty interesting because between that creation and solid matter, all you have is energy. Energy doesn't record time at the speed of light. As Einstein discovered, time doesn't pass. Time goes by, but there's nothing measuring it. You can't measure time with a light beam. You know, because it wouldn't, if you had a clock and a light beam, it would say zero all the time. Mm-hmm. So from the moment, so if we take that, I'm probably getting too deep, but I just want to make it. No, fun. no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm following tomorrow. Okay. From the, from the first forms of matter, which would be what's the first forms of matter? Protons. Protons are the first step because electrons. Electrons don't define matter. Protons, if I say one proton, I'm saying hydrogen. I say six protons, I'm saying carbon. Eight, I'm saying... So from the energy of protons in the universe at that time, so the energy today, we're having a great diagram from NASA. I don't know if you can see this diagram. Does that show up on you? Yeah, 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 I can see that. Okay, so that's a NASA diagram. Every word is NASA. National space is there. It's... This is the most strong theological statement science will ever be able to make, but I'm not going to get to that right now. But the, the, Torah, the Bible sees time looking forward from here. This is a time diagram. Each line is a billion years. We're out here on the oval. I don't know, on the oval, about, about 14 billion years later, less. And the Bible sees time from here and says six 24-hour days because Adam would be, you know, would be way out here. We're here by the 6,000 years, and this would be about, about that time. We, we look back and we see 14 billion years just rounding you off. The, I'll tell you. I said, that's interesting. Lucky, I was in a, a program. I don't know if you think Pat Robertson, he's the major uh, theological uh, out, 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 uh, evangelist. In any event, he said, I said, I was just, I'm just the lucky one that had, knows enough Bible and enough, and enough, enough Bible and enough uh, science to put these numbers. He said, you're not lucky. You were blessed. Now, and then I suddenly realized after that, blessed doesn't mean like this. It means you got something. I didn't earn my brains. I got them from my parents. You know, I mean, it's, you know, and I, and, and I stumbled into this, but I, then I realized. The Bible seeing from here, day one. That's when I read that, and it just clicked to me. We're looking back. What would it took if I took these 14 billion years and run them back in time to here? Can I possibly do that? And I can. How? Because I know what's called the redshift, the difference in the temperature of the universe here, where it's very, very hot, and here, where it's quite, very, you know, space is very cold. That This is what was so... Pardon me for saying that. That ratio, it's a science number. There's zero by there's zero viable in this calculation. But it just turns out when you divide the 14 billion years by that compression factor, which is exactly what the redshift, what's the jargon is the redshift. It's how much space is stretched. Which stretches, which if you run back in time, it compresses the concept. The perception, it compresses, the word is perception of time. Josh, when you run the, when you run this back in time, so I take that number, mm-hmm. write 14 billion years by that. You can guess what you get. It was scary. Six days or seven yeah. days. Six, six days. Six days. Wow. Once you get to Adam, the clock becomes earth-based. It's actually five and a half days. And it comes out, it's, a, it's an exact, there's not a Bible number in that calculation, not one. It's 14 billion years, science data, or 13.7, divided by the redshift. Mm-hmm. That redshift, I have, 
have a magnificent statement here. I actually printed it out. I just noticed it before the uh, went on the air. And it's by Peebles, Chase. The uh, the in the in the uh, his famous book Principles, PJ Peebles, Principles of Physical Cosmology. It's probably the most important cosmological textbook ever a textbook. It's standard procedure. I'm just gonna read I can, a standard procedure to label an epoch of the universe by the expansion factor, the redshift, the ratio of the rate wavelength as it was emitted rate to how is it observed. The standard interpretation of the redshift as an effect of the expansion of the universe predicts that the same factor applies to observed rates of occurrence of events. I, if I paid him to write that, he sent it in book. He couldn't have done it better. And 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 it's not a trick. And that's that calculation is my second book, The Science of God. In the first book, Hidden Genesis of the Big Bang, we talked generally. I didn't, I didn't hadn't when I wrote the first book, I had not uh, formulated. In fact, thank goodness I had a wrong idea and they didn't. They thank God I didn't put it, put my wrong idea into the book. But anyway. That's in the first book I talk generalities. The second book, The Science of God, goes through day by day. And it's all science. So, age of the universe, dinosaurs, Homo sapiens sapiens before Adam, all fine. The switch comes about six, little bit less than 6,000 years ago, and the British Museum dates it. The British Museum, oh, where are you? I'm in London. Okay, we may, we may be in London. Oh, I'd love to meet you. Yeah, okay. that'd be fantastic. And I, Barbara takes our, each, every few years, Barbara takes two of our grandchildren when they're returning Bar Mitzvah, Bar Mitzvah to London as a, as a trip. Oh, this trip. lovely. So it'll be later, I have to keep, keep this in mind, later in the, uh, in the year. Uh, but if you get over to the British Museum, and you go to the Mesopotamian room, there you see a plaque on the wall of the first cities. It gives a date. It is essentially the biblical date for Adam. I, I spoke, I met the curate. No, I, I know I spoke with him, but I don't remember if it was by, by internal phone or being face-to-face. No mention Adam, no mention of soul, no mention of homo sapiens, nothing. The, the exhibit describes a major change in civilization for which the curator is the British Museum, has no explanation. Not a population explosion, but suddenly large cities appear. I mean, suddenly, we're talking about a hundred years span here. Large, the first large cities, and it gives a date. The date matches exactly as if Adam, Adam gets this, what's called the neshama. They were, they were homo sapiens sapiens before Adam, lots of them. Well, one of them gets a, the soul, they all, they, everyone has a nephesh, the soul of animal. Uh, we have a nephesh, but on top of that, we have an neshama, the soul of human life. The human, all humans have it. And, and the, we, the date is given because you can add up the calendar and it matches the British Museum's date for the first cities. This is not a joke. No, I mean, it's fascinating. Walk, walk, I hope if you're walking around London, and maybe the exhibit is still on. It's in the Mesopotamia room, and it's, it's called the, the first large, the earliest cities. So uh, that's two ends of the that's two ends of the dating. When you have Adam up here, and back here we have the uh, the six days. Josh. Yeah, I'm just looking at the British Museum to see if they have the gallery up. The the, the oh. thing's still open. Oh. Um, I don't know if the same one. Well, that's, uh, anyway, I'll look at that. The exhibit, the exhibit is called the earliest cities. And it was I'm just the, curious. I'm going to have to go have a look yeah, at it. Okay. Anyway, it's really, they say about 3,500 years ago, which is 5,500 years ago of 3,500 BCE of every 5,500 years ago. And Adam is 300 years earlier. The Neshama changes near the first cities. But what was amazing is but the curator said, we have no understanding. Why did why this happen? I said, population? He said, no, it wasn't a population. That goes back to farming, mm. back 11,000 years. And once you have farming, populations can grow. You're not hunter-gatherer, you can have more kids, etc. So 
Again, I didn't mention Adam, soul, neshama, whatever, Bible, just. Yeah, there's just just scientific numbers. It's mad. Yeah. It's really, really mad. So yeah. I'm curious as to what you meant when you said that that chart is the strongest theological argument that science has ever made. Oh, Josh, look what this says. This is NASA. Yeah. Everywhere is NASA. This is the creation. Quantum fluctuation. Sometime you have a chance, look up the name Ed Trier and T-R-Y-O-N, who is the first person to say that a quantum fluctuation is probably the origin of the universe. Uh, he went to his grave with no, with no praise given to him. It's so sad. Oh. But you realize what this is saying? I mean, I want to take the global picture here. This is the creation, burst of energy. Over here, we have our 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 time the oval and look what these look what we did we made this satellite hmm. the map satellite that maps the history of the universe so what does this diagram say it says that this is the only physical creation make that clear all of physics holds about this all of biblical all hebrew biblical theology holds by this also is one physical creation science calls it the big bang the Torah calls it Breshibra Elohim at the the opening sentence of the Bible. This burst of energy, which is accepted by the scientific community, can morph and change and morph and change and morph and change and become people that can feel love, joy, cry with wonder, cry with pain, cry with wonder, with love, and build a satellite. You realize it says? Light beings became alive. Mm. That's what this diagram tells you. Science accepts the fact that light beings have within them the potential to feel love, to feel excitement, to feel the joy that you had when you started thinking about some of these things. And it goes through your whole body like electricity suddenly. Light beams can feel love. Where does a light beam have the chutzpah to feel love? That's what this diagram says. Because there's no other physical creation. These light beams became you and me. You, I'm looking at you as the light of the creation in the form of Josh. And you're looking at the light of creationality, but also the chair and everything else, your shirt on your back. Everything is made from that light. Light beams can feel joy. I mean, give it a break. I mean, really, light beams don't have that. But apparently they do have it in them because they did it. So how? That's why I say it's the strongest theological statement you can make that accepts the fact that however the universe created within this creation of physical, this totally ethereal. I mean, it took an Einstein to get e equals mc squared. That's the e. You know, the e in the mc squared does not say the e disappears and becomes m. E is energy, m is matter. Mm -hmm. It means e can change form. Energy can change form and become stuff. Just like steam can become ice, right? It's all H2O, but steam can become liquid, become ice, but it's always H2O, it's always water. And the energy doesn't disappear, it just changes form. And, and, and that's what this says. These light beams can morph, change, morph, change, 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 and become you and me. And by, by the theological statement is that, first of all, there's a creation, from absolute nothing physical, I have a, there is, if you have a chance, there's an, a, 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 a uh, I guess you go to YouTube, uh, Proof of God in Five Minutes. If you look up Proof of God in Five Minutes, Schroeder, okay? I've, or your listeners also, if they, if they have a chance. Proof, you just type it on Google, Proof of God in Five Minutes, Schroeder. It has where with, it has about, the last time look about three and a half million views. And where? It's over five million. If you look at the, the pilot, you know, pirated set. Yeah. And and what does it say? It says it, it looks at the creation and it discovers using this. The only all the, the entire the entire talk, which lasts five minutes and twenty-eight seconds, no script whatsoever. Zeros, just we did it on one foot. Let's make a let's make a video. The graphics are great. I didn't do the graphics. I don't know how to do that. Make that clear. But it says that a non-physical force, because what does this diagram say? I just described this. A non-physical force 
that predates our concept of time, which begins with the creation of the universe. My thing is before the universe. Non-physical force that's outside of time as we know it, predates our concept of time, produced the physical universe from nothing physical. Gee, that sounds familiar. Not physical, outside of the time, creates the universe from absolute nothing. Gosh, I thought they used to spell that G-O-D. But it's the laws of nature and God consistent. And the quantum fluctuation is spot on. And that it can do it, first of all, the fact that it can do it, which thank God, Tryon's brilliance. But God, the biblical God consistently uses nature when nature can do the job. We come out of Egypt. We're trapped by the, by the it's called the Red Sea. It really means the Reeds, the Hebrews, the Reed Sea. The Amsu is the Reed Sea. We're trapped by the Reed Sea. The, 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 the pursuing Egyptian, I'm not, not in Egypt right now. We have peace with Egypt, okay? But the, the Egyptians back then were chasing us. We're trapped by the sea. And God splits the sea. And the people go through. That split, what does God use? A strong, Exodus chapter 4, 21. God uses a strong east wind. I mean, God needs a strong east wind, like a whole man. God can split the wind. God can split the wind, the sea anywhere. And that splitting the sea was so unimpressive that after the Israelites go through, the Egyptians follow them right on in. It's a wind. You know, those lucky Jews, they got the wind in the banks. What do you want? They got everything, you know. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's that when, why didn't God do something that would impress people? We talk about it now. But the Egyptians weren't, weren't impressed by it. Because we know that because when the waters are coming back, they try, you know, they try to hightail it out of there and they're, and they're stuck. So the, uh, yeah. the amazing fact is this. I want to show you something. Could a wind split the sea? I don't know how much of that you can see. Can you read any of that? Uh, it says, are there oceanographic explanations for the crossing of the Red Sea? Yes. Correct? It's a, and it's published in the world's leading meteorological journal. The Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society is the AAA or Aleph 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 Meteorological Journal. And it says you sure can. 40 mile 40 miles an hour out of the east will split through, you know, depending on the location, the, the wadis, the riverbeds that focus the wind. It said 40 miles out, it's not even a hurricane. No one of the Egyptians weren't impressed. It split the sea. Mm. So why would God end? You know why? Because the world will always look natural. So you look below the surface, it all looks natural. Yeah. You're reminding me of um, this... Uh, absolutely fantastic thing that my friend um, was showing me recently, actually, that there was chariot wheels found um, at, at the bottom of the Red Sea at the part where um, there is suspected that the crossing happened because it's the, the shallowest part of the sea and has like a a nice... A nice little place that you would the like say say theoretically it was yeah like it was it's a it's a land bridge i mean it's not quite because it, it is also still submerged but they find char egyptian chariot wheels on on this bridge under the water like where they think people crossed and i was like what what i there's two, yeah things things are, are are blowing my mind a lot and you are yeah truly blowing my mind with um this this talk about the yeah the the creation of the universe like the it's the i've never heard anyone put it like that with the way you you spoke about about light becoming well, everything if, that's that's like yeah mm. that's that's but that's that's what they, that's what this diagram is so i mean i don't think the publisher of, i don't think the publishers ever realized it but it's such a phenomenal statement you know the uh, the uh the the discovery of how the universe had been created from absolute nothing physical. And quantum, and quantum, I mean, it's the same physics that allows these machines that we're talking on to work. It's the exact same thing. Quantum physics allows something for nothing in, in very specific instances, not like every, every time you walk across the street. But the physics does allow this. Yeah. And uh, that's the, the, uh, the the one of the founders one of the founders of uh nasa 
Robert Jastra, one of the earliest of the members of one of the founding members. Of, I don't know if I can find my glasses if I still have them. I must say, see if I can, I can find this quote. It's really quite amazing. He wrote this several years ago in the uh, in the Los Angeles Times. In the beginning, there was a bang and it was a big one. So here, and this is in the small print here, but I wrote it out in, in text that I could actually read. Hmm. Uh, for the science, this is the closing of this article about the, the creation of the universe. Okay. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls him o- himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> and that's, that is one of the founding members of NASA. He's, he's obviously he's pretty old at this stage. Yeah. Robert, Los Angeles Times. Interesting. Yeah. Band of theologians who've been saying, I mean, before Hubble found the data that convinced Einstein that creation, become, we've been talking about a creation for 3,500 years. And a description of the creation, you look at, at some of the verses, I mean, I'm not going to go point by point, but there, I mean, one of the places where it's a statement that God tells Moses to assemble the entire congregation at the door of the tent of the meeting, okay? Well, there's a couple of million people here. And so a, a, a story, it's called a midrash, is developed at this point where Moses and God have an argument. And it's like this. And this is a midrash that goes back to about the year 200, about 1800 years ago. Midrash goes like this. God says to Moses, gather the entire assembly of the tent. Moses says, what do you want from me already? I didn't want this job. It's, you know, he's forced it down my throat at the burning bush. And I didn't want it then. I don't want it now. I got, I got 600,000 soldiers here. I got another situation. The women aren't Kravi. They're not bad. It's a million, 200,000. I got people under 20 and people over 50. I got two to three million people. How do you expect me to get three million people at the door of the tent of the meeting? It's all the Midrash. This Midrash is 18 years to get eight, you know, two, three million people at the door of the tent of the meeting. I can't do it. And God says back to Moses in this, in this Midrash, what I'm about to tell you will astound you. I've seen that nowhere else in any biblical commentary. What I'm about to tell you will astound you. When I created the universe, there's no bigger than the black of your eye. And I spread it out to the regions you see today. Now, why would anyone 1,800 years ago think that the universe could start as a tiny speck? Of course, now we know the universe started as a tiny speck. And it's expanded out. And it's interesting he uses the black of the eye because the black of the eye changes size. Mm. It's very interesting. When it's brightest, it's smallest at the highest energy, and then it gets darker and gets bigger. So that's the Tanchuma. What, what, what book is this in? Sorry, just so I can look it up for my own. That, that, that's in the book of, it's in the book of Leviticus. Well, it's a, a story, but it's in Leviticus. And uh, it's easy to find on Google. Assemble, yeah. I can do it right now. Assemble the entire congregation at the door of the tent of the meeting. Let me see. I, it's, I, think, it's, I think it's Leviticus 8. I'm not going to guess it. No, I can find it. I just want to know so I can go and look it up a bit later. Um, but yeah, if I, if I look for Leviticus, assemble the entire congregation, that, that I'm sure that will come up later. Yeah. But um, I wanted to sort of turn the conversation a little bit towards um, a different like a slightly different tact here um, because okay. it, this is a topic that um, my friend and I talk about a lot is uh, the idea of objective morality. So this is where my, my like not musings, <laughs> that's maybe a bit of a, like a strong word. My thoughts about this, like first, like I, f- I first like started to like debate in my head about it was this idea of, of objective morality and whether, whether humans could be moral beings without religion. Um, and this is something that's come up in um, one of your audiobooks that I'm listening to. Um, what I think it's called, What, what, what God Says About God. Um, and you make... Not according to God. 
Yes, God according to God. That's it. Um, and and you make this this really interesting and quite amusing um, point about how um, we believe as humans that like rationality and were we to cast aside religion, that that rationality would would emerge and we would set forth into this golden human age of of reason and and enlightenment like the 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 truest the truest expression of what the enlightenment is meant was meant to have kicked off and you kind all, of all, all evidence to the contrary yeah and this this really amused me when you put it like this because um i've 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 heard like some people interpreting some of of what nietzsche said um in the same way um about yeah that we that god is dead and that then the 20th century he somewhat predicted that we would oscillate between two extremes of of totalitarianism essentially as humans struggled to grasp or struggled to give meaning to life without religion mm. and i was wondering if yet yeah, you you'd um if there's if there's any do do would you buy the case that we had to go through that in order to then eventually reach an age of reason or do you think that that this morality has to be set within us from some sort of more divine power i think the, i think from all the evidence that we have and remember that uh, i think david Klinker once asked me if i would write a review for uh i think consilience in, in any event if you look at the french revolution there was an attempt to have total reason it was Right, it was complete enlightenment. They devoured their own. I mean, they they ate their own people alive, essentially. And it, if for some reason, I guess because the difficulty is, is what's moral for you is is not so good for me, hmm. and what's moral for me is not so good for you. But I don't care because it's moral for me. Uh, I think I this the white David Walp. Uh, Walpi, the rabbi in California, uh, has a book, I think it's the best of all of them, called, I think it's called Why Faith Matters. It's a very small book. And it goes through many of these the discussions along this line. And But baseline is, he points out the, all the attempts, the historical attempts in which humans, attempt, humans set societies that were uh, religion- Free, and they became moral free. They became moral free, in other words, immoral. Uh, well, they wouldn't be considered. But they would not. No, that's not fair to say because because those societies did not consider themselves immoral. They just cons- the conception of what we would call morality would have a totally different definition. And uh, the might is right. That would be moral. That could be in a society that could be completely moral. That you don't want. You don't want people to, you don't want these weak people around anyway, but they should be sterilized. That would be moral for the benefit of society, etc. So I would say based on, and I'm not overwhelmingly, I, I, I mean, I, I guess from the outside, it would appear that I would, it's extremely religious, but I mean, I'm a fairly moderate, moderate uh, person. And I would say that, all evidence is that if we try to make up morality, then we miss, miss it out. And I heard once Dennis Prager make the statement that if you have the baseline of the Ten Commandments and what they actually mean, from there on, you can have all different ways in which will work. But with those as a baseline, society will probably work uh, with them. So... Uh, and I was, I think I would go along with that. I, I work, I'm, I would be considered an Orthodox Jew, but I'm working now with a, a, a mega church in, uh, in, I mean, course, Jews are such small congregations, any church that has a million people or so, but I can't think of a mega, mega church in, in uh, Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. It's all over the world, but it's based in Sao Paulo. We spent, and today we spent three hours on Skype. We do it two or three times a week, writing what we call the Science Bible, trying to understand some of the subtleties within the text, but not only from science science, but also social science as well. Uh, and I have neither they nor I have any problem with the fact that they are, they are devout Christians and I'm a devout Jew. 
And in the end, when Jesus said the most important sentence in the world is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think it's in Matthew. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And when he said the next most important sentence is you should love your neighbor's self, he was quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So we have a, we have a baseline that's pretty much uh, the same. So what am I saying? I'm saying that it's, that the deeper you get, I find, the deeper you get into the subtleties of the text, the more you find a wisdom that exceeds what I would think would be the, uh, the, the, uh, the wisdom of a person that would, that, in other words, without having some kind of base behind it, the wisdom wouldn't be there. I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm. That, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that argument made before. So, do you do you so you don't think that there's any any weight to be given to to the the evolutionary argument that that humans developed our sense of morality because of the need for cooperation and what made survival most likely? Like you think it, it had to have come from something else, essentially. Well, in other words, we would get it from need for survival, and then we would clothe it in the idea that God gave it, even if there was no God. Is, is, am I hearing you say that, or just? Yeah, I mean that 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 could definitely be part of it. Of course, then you're back to religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, once you believe that God gave, even if, if even if the founding father of that believed that it's just a uh, phony, the people that believe it think that it really. I would say, in theory, absolutely true, because that's why people try it. But in fact, it doesn't work. It, do, it hasn't worked. It didn't work for Marx. It didn't work for Stalin. It didn't work for uh, Mao, Mao Zedong, whatever his name was. It didn't work for Paul Potton. It didn't work. It didn't work for Hitler. And it didn't. You know, I mean, everyone had their own morality. Mm. Hit, those Nazis did not think they were evil. No. Think. I don't think they thought they were evil. No, they, I wouldn't. I, well, maybe some of them, a, but most the of them probably were, not. Yeah, you know, the Jews were vermin or something, or you know, something a bit like like that. Uh, and uh, you know, the how many eighty million or tens and tens of millions of the numbers are beyond understanding. I uh, yeah, like it's one of the political things. I went by morality. They totally remember. It just stuck into my head, you know. So one of these, I was a column in one of the I think New York Times about the person who saw the wounds from these mass shootings. You know, we we see television, bang, 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 and he said the bullet goes in. It's not maybe you get a drop of blood here. He said you should, you should go and view the view, view the bodies. The the headless children I had no idea these weapons could do these horrible kinds of stuff. You know. So and I was I always. <laughs> When I was young, I had a rifle, and I was a member of the NRA. <laughs> and that's the big lobby these days. So, you know, one wonders where, I mean, the constant, I don't want to get into politics, but the constant, you know, right to bear on, but I guess, and then the morale, moral things, is there a limit to that right? Are there limits to certain rights? There, there are limits to free speech. You shouldn't be allowed to go and just to say horrible things about another, a lie. You shouldn't unknowingly lie. You shouldn't be allowed to. And you can say, well, it's free speech. So I would think there should be. There, there, there are limits to freedom, I guess. That's the point. And that's exactly, of course, that's what morality does. It limits what you can do in the name of morality. Mm, yeah. In, you know, in the name of, of righteousness, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'd like to go back here, just like so for the the final thing I'd like to ask you about, if you've if you've got time here. Um, uh, okay. you, you mentioned um, some some deeper some some text that the 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 deeper you look into it, the more subtleties and wisdom emerge. I was wondering if you could give me an example. Oh, uh, okay. Well, how about the opening of the Bible? Reishit bara Elohim at the the, this was not most of this is not mine. I think maybe ninety nine percent goes back to Ra commentator Rashi in the year ten ninety in my mind, etc. The difficulty with the usual translation, which you know the, the usual translation of Genesis chapter one verse one. I'm not. I'm going to put you on the spot. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm. The difficulty is the word beginning is nowhere in the text. It comes from the, the mistranslation of the Septuagint, which is about 2,200 years of Hebrew. But it's, it's Hebrew into Greek and then Greek into Latin, the Vulgate, and then Latin into English. So you got Hebrew into Greek, Greek into Latin, and it's like telephone. By the time you get to the end, you can't understand the message. Yeah. Difficulty with that, con- that translation is the first word of the Bible, again, this is Rashi, long before dinosaurs, long before quantum physics, long before, okay, Rashi, the year 1090. He's pivotal. Reason, every, every Hebrew translation, every Hebrew text of the Bible, every Hebrew printing of as the Rashi on the side, almost every, as his statements about it. It's not, it's not God, but it is a person that's tried to. The difficulty with in the beginning is the first word of the Bible, Breshit, could mean in the beginning if it were not Breshit, but Breshona. I apologize for giving the Hebrew, but that's the problem. In the beginning is Breshona, but the Bible says in the Breshit, which means in the beginning of. So the text now reads, if you can have a beginning, in the beginning of mm, God created the heavens and the earth. The mm, is not in the text. So and as, as he points out, it can't mean this because there's no object. I'm, I'm giving you English, but it's identical to the Hebrew. Yeah. The, the T sound, the sheet, means like of. But a shona, the ha sound just means in the beginning. In the beginning of Breshit, which is what the Bible says, requires an object. And Rashi and, and everyone else, and it was everyone, I'll say it, requires an object. But there's no object. Therefore, you have to find another meaning for the first word. And Breshit is a compound word of B, Breshit. B with Breshit from the word Rosh means head. B means with, with the first cause, head cause. God created the heavens there. The rest is simple. So what is the first cause? The other parts of the Bible are like commentaries on the actual text. So, if you, so Rashi said, if you want to figure out what this means, you have to go to Proverbs. Because Proverbs explains it. And he sends us to Proverb 8. And, and Proverb 8 says, it's a first-person proverb. It's a pro- I am, well, I'll give you the hoop. He sends it to verse 22. God made me as the beginning of God's ways. Before there was an earth, I was present. When God created the heavens, I was God's, I was there. When God created this, I was present. Always says, I, you don't know who the I was, you know? Because Rashi assumes that by sending us the first 20, 20, 22 and thereafter, will have the sense to read the first 21 verses. And in verse 12, the I identifies itself. I am wisdom. Not I am wise, not any chacham. Not any chachma, any chachma, rather. I am wisdom, not I am wise. I am wisdom. Wis- like I am Jerry. Jerry is speaking here. Wisdom is speaking here. I am wisdom. Now you go back. When God made me, when God made the world, I, wisdom, was present. God, I was the first of God's creation. The first, we see in a, in a flow of diagram, the Big Bang creation, energy and matter, or energy, energy becomes matter, matter becomes amazingly alive, the life develops a brain, then the mind is probably separate, but we start with the Big Bang creation of the energy, but the Bible doesn't. It starts with Breshit, I am wisdom. We have God, the first emanation from God isn't the Big Bang creation, it's wisdom, or mind. Science calls it mind today. George Wall, Nobel laureate. I've, I finally, it is, he says, it's been a shock to my scientific sensibilities. And Wall starts off his life as an absolute, I would say atheist, ag- more than, lower than, an ag- closer than an agnostic, time, chance, does it all. It was, he says, it's a shock to my scientific sensibilities, but the only way I can put together the origin of life from non-living matter and the origin of Life from non-living matter and the origin of, of something about the brain in that life from non is that mind was the first creation. This, 
Eccles says it. Mines, Wald says it. Uh, Schrodinger, I'm Schroeder. Schrodinger says it. Uh, Heisenberg says it. I mean, I can give you a list of Nobel laureates. They say mind or wisdom was the, is the substrate. But Josh, what this means is that if mind or subs is if mind or wisdom or what's the other third? Well, I'll just use mind. Okay, is the substrate. That means everything has mind. I know this sounds very corny, it's a terrible way to end up the program. So you really think it's crazy? No. But mind is present everywhere. Mind. It's not. It's not like pantheism. In a sense, I guess it is. But there is mind, just like everything that we look around us is energy, is made from the energy of creation. But that substrate of that energy is wisdom. With, and the best translation of Genesis chapter one is with a first cause of wisdom, God created the heavens and earth. And the oldest translation that we have into Aramaic, now the Septuagint is Greek, Aramaic, which goes back about 1800 years, the Targum Yushami, is Bahachmata Bara Elohim. With wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. With wisdom. Now, the full translation would have been with the first cause of wisdom. But the Jerusalem translation just jumps in and says, with wisdom. It doesn't mean that God was wise. From the matter of problems, you really question whether God was wise. God probably questions whether he's wise. Hmm. But why? But wisdom in mind is the substrate. It's bizarre. I can't hardly get, I can say it. It's hard to wrap, I can't wrap my mind around it. Everything, everything as an aspect of mind. Some some aspects of this creation can express the mind. Mm. We can understand, and some can't. So there's a commentary. Well, in the text, when Cain murders Abel, God confronts Cain and says, "Your brother's bloods cried to me from the earth." Brothers, brothers' bloods can cry. See, you could actually, if you take that original understanding that there's a wisdom, and the blood, the bloods somehow might communicate. I have no idea what it means in, in physical terms, but it certainly opens the door for the fact that we, if this is the case, then that we do have, which I feel absolutely certainly, it's, there's no time to discuss it tonight, that we have a mind that is separate from the body to prove it but quantum physics opens the realm in which the mind may sit namely a non-physical a non-physical realm uh course quantum physics has a non-physical aspect to it in, in tunneling in action stances several of these things so anyway i'm just saying myself over and over again the, no you're you're the, you, you're you, you see in the mirror him you say this the, the, I usually say the you that makes you, but I just someone else said it to a better way. The you you see in the mirror is not the you that makes you you. Mm. Yeah. You you see in the mirror is not the you that makes you the you you are. That what makes you the you you are is your mind, and as as Eccles says it in the, the self and the mind, it's a book. He says. The mind uses the brain as an instrument to think. Mm. And Schrodinger says the only reason we think that we're in this physical picture is that our bodies and our brain are in the physical picture. And that is the only way of we human. These are Nobel laureates in physics. Yeah. And Echoes is a scientist. I mean, they're not like lightweights, you know. <laughs> they built the machinery that we're using now to talk. Yeah. The, your your the, your description of everything being like the, uh, in in mind or or something is is kind of reminded me of um oh, what is his name Philip Goff um in who's a professor at the University of Durham who's done some work on on panpsychism and it, it's kind of given me those kind of thoughts just yeah because yeah anyway. That I, tell me, what is panpsychism pan, pan, pan pan is um let me let me get up his description of it uh the basic commitment is the fundamental con uh, is that the fundamental constituents of reality um all the way down to electrons and quarks have an incredibly simple form of experience so that basically uh, he believes that there's a possibility that 
everything is is conscious in some form that oh, uh, so that objects it's exactly what yeah maybe he's read genesis chapter one maybe it sounds very similar to what we were just talking about. It yeah, is. yeah, it's why 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 it reminded me of it. I had to, I had to look up. Um, What's his name again? So it'll stick in my head. Philip Goff. Can you spell his last name? Uh, G O F F. Philip Goff. Goff. Yeah, Goff. yeah. He's. Uh, I'm hopefully going to have him on the show um, when he finishes his next book. Um, so I will 100% be asking him about this. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm sure that'll be a fascinating conversation. If, if you can have your, your, your PR person send me a note when he's going to be on. Yeah, I definitely will. Um, I 100% will, but anyway, um, Jerry, you've, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Uh, and I feel like you, you left it in the perfect way there. The you that is the you that you see in the mirror, isn't the you that makes you, you, that's a beautiful note on which to, to finish things. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'll put links uh, for all the stuff we've discussed in the description for people, um, as well as links for some of your books and lectures and stuff that I've been watching. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Okay, my my absolute pleasure. And it was a pleasure having discussion. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.